Art is so important for defending freedom of expression in so many ways. You can look at so many different revolutions and big movements and art and artists are always there, they're always involved. Hello and welcome to the Art Persists podcast, a new series offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world. In each episode, we feature interviews with artists who share their first-hand experience of using their art to stand up to some of the world's most feared dictators and regimes, and individuals working day and night to protect them. My name's Georgia, and in this episode, we talk to Jemima Steinfeld, Editor-in-Chief of Index on Censorship magazine. Index on Censorship is an organisation advocating freedom of expression worldwide. Jemima used to live in Beijing and Shanghai and is author of the book Little Emperors and Material Girls, Sex and Youth in Modern China. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, Telegraph, New Statesman and CNN, to name just a few. it's really really cliched but I think there's a reason why Shakespeare's really popular and is still read and is still relevant and so one line that I find myself often quoting of the many lines that I quote in general from different people is from King Lear when it says oh reason not the need our basest beggars are in the poorest things superfluous and I just I always say it quite often I say it to my dad I always did as a teenager when he would say you don't need something and I'd say oh reason not the need because it basically means what we need is so basic really as a human species it's you know very primitive just a bit of food a bit of water some shelter a bit of warmth but life isn't just about needs it's about wants and desires and I think it's such a a relevant quote in so many ways because not only have I been able to use it as a teenager in fights to try and get my way but as an adult working somewhere like index which is where i'm currently working we're dealing with the concept of rights which again is this concept that's far beyond what you just as a human need it's about how we as a society want to function what we want to prioritize how we want to live what we think makes life worth living life isn't just worth living for food etc although food is great it's worth living for all the things that we strive to put in place Hi Jemima and welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us what got you interested in defending freedom of expression? Well, it would definitely have to be living in China. I lived there twice in my 20s and this was during the old president leadership of Hu Jintao as opposed to Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping's China is a lot more controlled than Hu Jintao's was, but ultimately this was still communist China things were censored and I had a few collisions with censorship when I was there and realised just how lucky really I was to live in a country where I didn't have to navigate this censorship world at all. But I live in a country as in to be from a country at the time I was obviously living in China. But I realised how grateful I was to be able to go back to the UK and to be able to operate in a pluralistic media situation where I could say things that were very very critical very easily and 
on the back of some of these experiences and observing some of the things that were happening in China, I started to write for Index on Censorship. Then I became the contributing editor for China and that's how I got involved with Index. And ultimately what these experiences have taught me and what working at Index has taught me and what, you know, I something I could have concluded myself, but I suppose it wasn't so front of mind until my 20s was that freedom of speech is the right that underpins all the other rights. It's the most important right really for that reason, because all these great movements for gay marriage and women to vote, they all happen because people can or do exercise their voice and they protest. And if we're not allowed to get that far, to begin with, then you know, we wouldn't have had these these great movements and the this great positive change. And can you tell us a bit about when you first moved to China, coming from the UK, kind of paint us a picture of what life was like when you first got there and, and how it was different to what your experience had been of living in the UK? I first moved to China in 2006 just as soon as I had graduated from university in the UK. I had spent some time in Asia traveling, um, about six, seven months, a few years before that. But I'd never at that stage lived fully, fully abroad, really. It was amazing, to be honest. I remember so vividly arriving in Shanghai with very little expectation. I hadn't actually been to mainland China at that stage. I'd never been to Shanghai, obviously. I didn't speak any of the language. I didn't really know what to expect and I arrived in September when it was still really, really quite hot and the atmosphere there was absolutely intoxicating. Lots of people spoke about it, likened it to New York in the 60s and the 70s and I wasn't around for New York in the 60s and the 70s but what I can say is that Shanghai at that stage just had such a sense of opportunity which is I assume why people likened it to America at that time it just felt like a place where you could do so much and that there was so much room to move but the thing that also fascinated me was I knew that that kind of that sense was smacking against other things you know I couldn't I couldn't help notice that next to the big skyscrapers there was still huge amounts of poverty and the whilst lots of people could do so so much and were raising their quality of life in terms of material quality. That there were also these restrictions on how many children they could have and as said what they could say and if they could or couldn't protest and where they could and couldn't protest. And so to me this was just absolutely fascinating to kind of witness these two different paths colliding before me. I really genuinely feel very grateful to have been in China at that time because I don't think it's like that anymore. I think a lot of that sense of enthusiasm and opportunity this was you know in the lead up to the olympics i don't think that's there as much i mean certainly not in xi jinping's covid zero policy china where it's really really quite depressing and very very small limited lives that lots of people are living i feel as i said tremendously grateful that i saw something that i think will was a great historical moment a great historical turning point you mentioned before having experienced yourself some forms of censorship while you were there. If you're comfortable with it, can you tell us a little bit about that? Of course. So the, I think well, my first running with censorship in China is in some ways quite an interesting anecdote for how it works even on the really, really mundane level. I 
was first working at a lifestyle magazine, basically a time out of Shanghai. And it was very, very fun. My first assignment was to go and review a massage, a nice spa and get a massage and a facial and write about it. And my kind of six months continued pretty much like that. I was reviewing restaurants, reviewing clubs, but occasionally I was writing features as well. And one of the features that I pitched to the editor was to talk about the emergence of lots of the US fast food chains and how they were changing people's diets in China and how that change was leading to higher levels of obesity and diabetes and other health conditions. And so it was a dive into that. The editor was happy with the end result, but even at this lifestyle publication, because it was being published within China rather than outside of China, it still had to always be seen by someone who was on the censorship board in China, the official board. And they didn't allow it to be published. And you wouldn't think superficially that this would be a particularly problematic article because ultimately I was being more down on the US than I was on China. But the censorship board said that it looked as if the Chinese government didn't have control of the health of their population. Jemima, you then wrote a book called Little Emperors and Material Girls, Sex and Youth in Modern China. Did you write and research it while you were in China itself? And what was that like, considering also what you've just said about censorship and kind of clampdowns on freedom of expression in China? So when I wrote my book, Little Embers and Material Girls, which was published in 2015, I had just moved back from China and was speaking to a publisher and wasn't sure whether the idea would get commissioned. When it did get commissioned, I moved back to China, but just for a research trip for about six weeks. And then I was doing research from England. It was mostly based on this kind of six months of intense research and writing. It was a very short deadline. It was also building on having been there in my 20s, having made friends with lots of young people, having written some articles for some international media that were related to those themes. And it was very much also in my own comfort zone. I first started writing as a teenager for my school magazine, an article that was basically a spoof of Sex and the City. So writing about the Chinese nation's sexual habits and their gender identities was very much, as I said, within my comfort zone and felt very natural to me. There probably were some sensitivities around it, and it's not a book that's been published in China itself, but it is a book that I have done a book tour in China to talk about. Again, I'm not really sure if I would have been able to do that tour today. I did the tour when it was Xi Jinping was in power, but he hadn't quite escalated the crackdown on dissent. So it would be curious as to whether I could speak as openly about these topics. I did a lot on feminism and there's been a really big crackdown on feminists in China today. Obviously there's a challenge in getting people anywhere to speak about sex. And I would say that it doesn't go very intimately into people's sexual details. It's much more about kind of using relationships and sexual identities to understand the the then one-child population. Is there an extract or an anecdote that you can share with us from that really surprised you while you were researching and writing the book? I think one of the things that really surprised me, and it's been written about by quite a few people now, 
but it never ceases to, I suppose, not surprise me, but more like shock me and upset me is there's this expression called leftover women, which is our equipment would be on the shelf. And it's for women who are single, who get to a certain age. And so they're considered not really desirable anymore. The Chinese word is shengnu. And what makes it particularly interesting is whilst we have the kind of the on the shelf thing here in China, you could be considered on the shelf from about age 27 as a woman, which is just really quite horrendous. And it's also quite fascinating. The, the main woman who researched it was a woman called Leta Hong Fincher. And in her brilliant book of the same name, she thinks it's a kind of a manipulation tactic to try and actually get women to marry to make them feel so bad that they'll feel more pressure to marry because ultimately in, you know, this was again almost coming up to 10 years ago now, with the one child policy, more girls had been aborted in utero. And so there were actually more men than women. And as a result of that, and as a result of this kind of this cliche that women were marrying up, so they were expecting wealthier men, that there was this pool of men at the bottom being left out of the bottom and so the women who are right, right at the top, who were, as the cliche went, weren't marrying, they were basically being given this term of your leftover and, you know, oh, look at you, what are you going to do with your PhDs and your great salary? Everything that, you know, that we value was basically being turned on the head to make sure that these women got married. And that was quite shocking. And I think it also kind of sh showed me just one of my findings of the book was that you, the way that tradition and modernity, lots of traditional values were kind of rubbing up against these modern values. You know, we have even today in our society, the kind of, you know, that stage where everyone starts to talk about women who are late 30s, in their 40s, who haven't got married and had kids and that kind of societal pressure. But to have it so clearly used as a like manipulation tactic is um, really upsetting. It's upsetting and it's something which this wasn't just a kind of, you know, old people made the comments or they're, you know, they're leftover women, they're on the shelf. It was that it, it was also in lots of newspapers and magazines, there would be these kind of cartoon scribbles of the, you know, the quote unquote leftover woman and these think pieces on like, what's happening? Why are these women being so choosy? Why are they single? It's because they just aren't attractive with all their PhDs. So, um, you know, it's just imagine if you woke up one day and you go and open a newspaper, the Daily Mail, or so, I mean, to be fair, you open the Daily Mail and get plenty of hateful things about women. But yeah, we have made progress to do things like getting rid of page three. And so it's kind of, it, you know, it, it, it's what page three felt like for a woman. As you mentioned, you're now Editor-in-Chief at Index on Censorship. Can you tell us a little bit about what the organisation does? So Index on Censorship was created 50 years ago. This is a big year for us. We were created in 1972 and we were created on the back of a call by someone called Pavel Litvinov, who was a dissident who protested in Red Square in Moscow in 68 against the 
troops that were going into Prague during what then became the Prague Spring or on the back of the Prague Spring the troops were going in and he protested the violence by the Russian government and he was persecuted very heavily as a result as were the people who were also in Red Square with him that day and he wrote a letter that was published in the Times which was a call to the international community to help in some way I think it was called organs of consciousness he was asking for to help in raise the voice and the profile of his plight and people who later formed index so Stephen Spender and Michael Scammell who was the founding editor of index the first editor and the founding they basically responded to his call by creating a magazine in 72 as well as an organization around the magazine mostly in the early days what index did was a magazine that would profile and spotlight freedom of expression issues around the world quite a lot was coming out of the ussr but it wasn't remotely exclusive to that in our first issue we have things out of greece out of portugal it was looking at both dictatorships on the left and the right, it still does. Since those early days, and we've produced some of the most remarkable writing from some of the most remarkable people, household names as well as just brilliant people that we all should have heard of for whatever circumstance we haven't, um, because their voices ultimately are being silenced. We, an organisation has grown around it that does a lot of campaigning and activism. And so we have spearheaded some really, really, really big campaigns. And actually right now, one of our main campaigns is about these things called slaps which are strategic lawsuits against public participation basically litigious actions that are taken against journalists quite often journalists working on public interest stories very powerful individuals will try and silence these stories through taking them to court quite often with very little meat on the bone for these cases but they just want to intimidate and exhaust these journalists and in so doing intimidate other journalists before they even put pen to paper. So we're doing a big campaign to spotlight these cases, why they're dangerous, why we should try and make our laws a bit more robust so that these cases can't be taken. So beyond slaps, as one example, what do you think are some of the greatest threats to freedom of expression today? Putin? <laughs> Putin would definitely be one of the greatest threats to freedom of expression today. I, um, I, I mentioned earlier that we were created on the back of calls from 68. So obviously what's been going on with Ukraine has been really, really resonant for us at Index. It, it really fits into our history and our creation, as well as being of huge, grave importance to what's happening today to freedoms. The next issue of Index on Censorship magazine, which is out in July, looks at what the war means for freedoms, both in Ukraine, but also beyond Ukraine. I mean, a lot of what this battle is about, it's about sovereignty, but not just sovereignty of land. It's about sovereignty over your own being and your rights. So the landscape in Russia is horrendous and it's got even worse since the war began. The passage of the fake news law has meant that media is basically crippled. It was not in a good place before the 24th of February. It's in an absolutely horrendous situation now. LGBT rights are pretty non-existent. Protesting is increasingly hard. It's really, 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 really difficult there. And 
Ukraine has a very strong sense, rightfully so, of their own national identity and they and to have their own autonomy as a in general, but also because they don't want no one wants the situation that's happening in Putin's Russia, where you are deprived of your own sense of being and your own culture and where Putin rewrites the rules in history. There are many, many, many dictators out there that are incredibly threatening and are worthy of talking about. And if we had endless days, I could list them all. Um, but I think Putin is definitely up there alongside Xi Jinping. I'll get to him in a second. I'd say Putin is definitely one of the biggest threats because, you know, as we're all worried, this war could escalate. We don't know how it's going to end. We know that Putin has been using tactics to derail lots of democratic movements within other countries. You know, they've linked Russian hacking and Russian disinformation campaigns to Trump and to Brexit. So I think he's a huge, huge threat. I would say Xi Jinping, as I said, is the other major threat maybe even more so, though it's hard to order them because they're threats in different ways. But one thing that has happened with Xi Jinping is that not only is he incredibly draconian for the world's biggest nation, which is 20% of the global population, but he is practicing an increasingly aggressive and beyond borders form of totalitarianism. So in Hong Kong, the passage of the national security law has an extraordinary element to it where it's extraterritorial, which means you can actually charge people against the, well, breaking the law. And the law basically is anyone who does something that's critical of Beijing rule is breaking the law. So you can charge people with having broken that law if they're based here in the UK. What that means in reality is quite different. We don't have an extradition treaty with Beijing, so we wouldn't be sending people to China who have broken that law. But it does mean that if you have been charged with breaking that law, as someone called Benedict Rogers, for example, has, who runs an NGO campaigning for Hong Kong rights, he now can't travel to countries, many countries in the world, that have, I think there's about 40 or something, that have extradition treaties with China. So that is one example of how Xi Jinping is going beyond borders. But you, there are so many examples. You see people, Uyghurs and Tibetans, having their phones hacked, etc., who don't live in China anymore. Some people being, you know, there was a bookseller in, from Hong Kong who was basically kidnapped in Thailand and ended up in jail in China. Use, I've heard stories of people being chased in New York. Nathan Law, the Hong Kong activist who lives in London, is very, very, very quiet and secretive about where he lives, where he goes, because he's worried again that he'll just be plucked off the street. You have ambassadors in different countries who will write into our newspapers saying, oh, you've done a critical cartoon, as happened during early COVID time, or you've done a critical piece and we, I don't like that and you need to apologise. So, you know, directly interfering with the democratic situations of different countries. And the problem is China is so powerful and so wealthy and we're in such a climate funk and China is so important to helping our global emission targets that I don't think anyone really, really quite knows how to deal with it. 
Yes, absolutely. And I guess we see that a lot in global events. I'm just thinking now of the murder of Khashoggi by the Saudis and how, you know, there was so much outrage and, you know, so many countries spoke out against the actions. And yet when push comes to shove, not much is done about it. I wanted to talk to you about the place of art in freedom of expression. And I know the Index on Censorship does do some uh, collaborations and some things about artistic freedom of expression as well. What place do you think art has in defending freedom of expression? Art is so important for defending freedom of expression in so many ways. You can look at so many different revolutions and big movements and art and artists are always there, they're always involved. We publish the plays of Vaclav Havel in the early 80s and he was an act, he was an activist and a dissident in then Czechoslovakia under the USSR under the Soviet rule and he was writing plays that were against that and through his activism and through his art he basically ended up you know creating such momentum that he then went on to become leader of Czechoslovakia as it transitioned from the late 80s through to the early 90s as it transitioned to become a free pluralistic society. So that's just one example of the kind of this interchange between art and activism and, and art and politics. Artists are, are crucially important and artistic expression is one of the main things that we campaign for. It's quite often one of the few ways in which people in really, really sensitive places can actually communicate. Not only is it incredibly strengthening for lots of people and the front cover of index on censorship that for this issue we actually have a ukrainian artist who was a children's book illustrator and when the war happened she couldn't get her typical work but she also was hearing bombs fall and was in a you know mentally in a, in turmoil and she found she's done the most beautiful illustration for our front cover which is political and not remotely children's picture and she said that you know doing that kind of work was really really strengthening for her so i think art is really really important in these very censored environments but it's also important in that quite often one of the the great things about art is that it escapes the senses, they don't always understand it. There are so many instances, I saw it in China, you know, you could go to some big exhibitions and you could go, wow, wow, they're making a really strong statement. You wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to write that. But because the senses are not always the most, you know, they're not always people who've come out with an MA in art history. And so they don't always get the kind of the subtleties and the nuances. And in this digital age, it is so much harder to censor a meme than it is to censor a word. So it's not only incredibly important for the artist and it's incredibly important for society to be able to enjoy art and to see art and to be challenged by art, but it's also incredibly important for fighting some of these, some of these battles for our, to keep our freedoms alive. Definitely. And it's great to hear kind of a, a positive side as well of the new tactics that may come out to defend freedom of expression. In my final question, I actually just wanted to ask you if you're hopeful about the future of freedom of expression in the world. Am I hopeful about the future of freedom of expression in the world? That is such a big question and it probably depends on what time of day you ask me. I think we have huge, huge challenges. I have seen in my five years working at Index generally the path getting harder 
more countries turning away from freedom of expression and free media and upholding protests as kind of basic rights and rights that are really, really important. But as I said earlier on, history is not linear and it does move in all kinds of ways. And so I think one has to just stay hopeful because I think without hope, it's very hard to continue really. And we need it. And I also work with some of the most fantastic people, journalists, activists and artists all over the world. They exist, they're doing superb things, they're incredibly brave. It might be getting harder for them, but they're still doing it. And I know that whilst those people exist, there's always hope. Thank you to Jemima for joining us for today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about her work, you can find links in the description. Coming up next week, we speak to a Ukrainian artist about her work in the midst of an invasion. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider following us, rating it and sharing it online. Only with your help can these stories be heard. Thanks for listening and see you next week.